0: Well, this week I uh, read the story of Li Fu Yan. Uh, For four years, he searched every treatment imaginable looking for relief from the headaches he was experiencing, but nothing seemed to help. And it wasn't until his doctor recommended that he get an x-ray that he understood the reasons for his discomfort. The x-ray revealed this. Do you see it there? A four-inch knife embedded in his skull on the right side. Four years earlier, uh, Li Fu Yan had been, uh, the subject of a mugging. And as a result, he received many lacerations to the right side of his head, but he had no idea that the robber had broken off a four-inch brain, uh, a knife, uh, blade in his head. I mean, no wonder he was experiencing such pain and such headaches. You know, whether it's a splinter lodged beneath the surface of the skin of our finger or a blade lodged in our skulls, our bodies weren't made to function well with foreign objects buried beneath the surface. You know, the same is true with your soul. I wonder what an x-ray of your soul would reveal. Maybe it would show regret over how you spoke to your mate this morning when you got up. Or maybe it would show remorse over poor decisions you continued to make. Or maybe there would be some shame over a habit you can't break or a temptation you can't resist. You see, for all of us, guilt can lie just below the surface of our lives, festering irritating, annoying, and frustrating us. Sometimes it can be so deeply embedded we don't even know where it came from. Now that's exactly where I think Joseph's family finds himself as we look at Genesis chapter 42. You need to know this is a broken family and their brokenness is so deeply embedded like the knife in the side of Yan's head, they can't see it. So what God wants to do with this family is He wants to take them on a journey. He wants to take them on a journey to expose the brokenness in their souls. In fact, turn with me to Genesis 42, beginning verse 1. You'll see exactly what I mean. Notice how it begins. It says, when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. Now, as we jump into this passage, we need to be reminded that this is a family that matters a whole lot to God. This is the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And God's desire is that those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. But before that can happen, God is going to have to rescue them. God is going to have to liberate this family from themselves. Now, a careful look at this text will reveal two threats coming against this family. I mean, one threat is readily apparent. The other is not so apparent. One is external. The other is internal. And we are introduced to the external threat in the closing words of the preceding chapter when the author says, The famine was severe in all the lands. And we saw last week that this family is on the brink of starvation. I mean, the external threat is there is a famine in the land. So this is a family in crisis. I mean, food is running out. They have no hope that anything is going to change before they starve to death. And then dad, Jacob, hears that there's grain in Egypt. So he gathers his boys together. He says, guys, head down there, buy grain for us so that we can survive. Now, now it's easy to focus on the famine as being the central issue in the text. But if that's all you see, You really miss what God's doing. You see, there's a second problem, a worse problem, an internal problem. There is brokenness in these boys' souls. It doesn't take a Ph.D. in psychology to figure out that this is a family that's really on the brink of self-destruction. I mean, their story reads like a soap opera. This is the kind of family that could be featured on the Jerry Springer show. This family put the fun in dysfunction. And that brokenness, it goes way back. I mean, it goes back to Jacob's childhood. You see, when Jacob was a kid, his father, Isaac, loved his older brother, Esau, more than he did Jacob. And that favoritism created all sorts of dysfunction, not only in the family, but in Jacob himself. I mean, as he grows up, he becomes a manipulative, deceitful, devious young man, taking advantage of everyone he comes in contact with. In fact, at one point, Jacob has to flee the family, has to leave, because his brother Esau wants to kill him for the devious things he's been doing. Now, you would think growing up in a family where favoritism rules that Jacob would have learned from that experience. No, he doesn't. He perpetuates the same problem in his family. I mean, he favors his wife Rachel more than his other wives. He favors his youngest son, uh, Joseph, more he does, his older brothers, and that Favoritism instills a jealousy in this family that drives these boys to the brink. I mean, you can remember as we've studied, I mean, two of them, Simeon and Levi, they become cruel, heartless, vindictive murderers. And their older brother, Judah. I mean, he ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law thinking she's a prostitute. And all ten sons end up... um, taking their younger brother, their baby brother, and threatening to kill him. But instead, they decide to, to sell him into slavery. And not willing to face good old dad about what they did, they tell him that he was eaten by wild animals, which sends dad into a severe depression. I mean, this is a family that's a mess. It's deeply divided. There's brother against brother. There's father against son. And at the beginning of chapter 42, the author gives us a little snapshot into this dysfunctional, fractured family. Did you see it as we read? Look back there. And then Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? In other words, get off your butts, guys. I mean, get your lazy, sorry self down to Egypt and go find us something to eat before we starve. That's what he's saying. So, so Jacob is this angry, self-focused old man that's trapped in the foolishness of his favoritism. And his sons are passive, irresponsible, unmotivated to do anything about their situation. But in spite of it all, you need to know God loves. This family, in fact, he loves them so much, he doesn't want to let them self-destruct. You know, none of us in this room come from a perfect family. And there's not a one of us that's a perfect parent. I mean, I'm certainly not. In fact, I remember when my boys got married, I looked him in the eye and I said, Now, son, you're going to have to take this by faith, but I screwed you up. I said, you can't see it now, but as you move into a family, into marriage, and have kids, there are going to be certain things that you're going to see more clearly. And I want you to know, my door is always open. You can come to me and tell me about it, and I want you to know, I will own it, and I will seek your forgiveness. You see, you can't own what you don't know. And there's a lot in this family that they don't know. So how is God going to break through to this group of guys? Boy, He's going to do it the same way He does it for you and me. God wants to take the brokenness of this world and expose the brokenness in their souls. He wants to take the external pressures found in this life and expose the internal pitfalls that are found inside of every one of us. Now, if you remember last week, as Chad was teaching, he told us about the ten brothers traveling to Egypt to go purchase grain. And when they arrive in Egypt, they come face to face with their brother, Joseph, the one they sold into slavery. Only they don't know it. They don't recognize him. But he recognizes them. And you remember, Joseph, as Chad taught, uh, makes his brothers jump through a number of hoops. Remember, he accuses them of being spies. Then he puts them in jail for three days. And then he sends them home, but he requires they leave one of their brothers, Simeon, in his custody. Now, you've got to remember, 20 years have gone by. It's been 20 years since they betrayed their brother. For 20 years, they have been pretending. 20 years of lying to themselves, 20 years of not dealing with the reality of what they've done, 20 years of covering up their guilt. In fact, it was author Phil Yancey who describes guilt this way. Guilt, like physical pain, is directional. Just as the body speaks to us in the language of pain so that we'll attend to the injury site, The Spirit speaks to us in a language of guilt so that we will take the steps necessary for healing. You see, guilt is the natural consequence for doing something wrong. You could say guilt is a consequence for sin. But did you know there is an objective and a subjective side to guilt? I mean, the objective side says this. You broke the law. Let's say you were pulled over for speeding. It really doesn't matter whether you feel guilty about it or not. You broke the law. I and mean, You are guilty of a violation. You're going to get a ticket no matter how you feel. That's the objective side of guilt. But there's also a subjective side of guilt. When we feel like we've done something wrong, the subjective side tends to manifest itself as regret or maybe shame, or maybe condemnation. So so there's an objective and subjective side of guilt. But did you know guilt is really a tool? A tool in the hands of God. Just like pain alerts us to seek medical attention, guilt alerts us to seek grace and forgiveness. You see, what God wants to do with this family is use the brokenness of this world to expose the brokenness in their souls in order to confront the guilt that's in their hearts and open their eyes to grace. God's grace. And isn't that exactly what God has done with Joseph? I mean, if you've been here through the series, we've watched as Joseph has changed. He's matured and he's grown through the difficulties, the painful situations in life. Remember, he was betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery. He was accused of rape, thrown into prison for a number of years. And through it all, God has used the external pressures of life, the brokenness of this world, To begin developing in Joseph a posture of humility and a heart of wisdom and discernment. So much so that we saw in the preceding chapter, Pharaoh looks Joseph in the eye and he says, There is no one as discerning and wise as you. Joseph didn't start out that way. But that's what he arrived at. And by the way, we're going to see this wisdom and this discernment and how Joseph masterfully keeps his identity uh, hidden as he deals with these brothers in the next two chapters. And we're also going to see how he begins orchestrating the the events of of his brothers' lives in a way that gently exposes them to the guilt that is hidden under the surface and then... He coaxes out a genuine change in their behavior. You see, when confronting the broken parts of a person's life, it's one thing to demand a change of behavior, but for change to be real, it has to go deep. It has to be a change of the heart. And Joseph is a master at getting that heart change. But but that's really getting ahead of ourselves. I mean, last week, Chad covered verses 1 through 24, but it's in the second half of this chapter, chapter 42, that we begin to see evidence of the change in Jacob's life and the beginnings of change in his brother's life. So let's begin reading in verse 25. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened their sacks to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been restored. There it is in my sack. I mean, did you see it? Did you notice the humility and the wisdom of, of Joseph's response to his brothers, it's a response of grace. Dude, I'm amazed at Joseph's self-control. I mean, can you imagine the temptation to reveal himself to his brothers? And then to tell his brothers, hey, remember the dream I had 20 years ago, guys? The, the dream you ridiculed me for having? I mean, he has unbelievable self-control. And I'm equally amazed that he's not vindictive. I mean, after spending 20 years in prison, 20 years of suffering, I mean, no one would blame him if he threw his brothers in prison for life, or maybe even had them executed. But Joseph doesn't try to exact a pound of flesh. That's not his objective. Instead of trying to pay them back, he wants to extend them grace. I mean, notice what he does. He gives them all their provisions that they need for their trip. He gives them to him, And then He secretly returns all their money. Now, how is He able to do that? Well, for the past 20 years, God has used the brokenness of this world to expose the brokenness that's in Joseph's heart. And from where we sit today, looking back, we can see clearly what God was doing during those 20 years was not punishing Joseph, but providing for him. And as a result, it yielded what the author of Hebrews describes as the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's God's development process, and through it all, Joseph's eyes have been opened to the grace that God has extended to him. So he he finds it easy to extend grace to others, particularly his brothers, even though they've harmed him. You know, I've seen the same thing true in my own life. I mean, the difficulties, the painful things of life, the confusion that comes into your life. I've watched how God has used that to grow me and develop me and to deepen some areas of my life to the point that I find it easier to have compassion for others and then even easier to extend grace to those going through the same thing that I had just gone through. And that's what Joseph is feeling here. But you got to remember, there's a contrast. A contrast going on in the passage. It's a contrast between Joseph's response of grace and the brother's response. Look back at verse 28. So one of the brothers looks in his sack. And here's what he says. My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then notice what else he says. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this God has done to us? I'm amazed they came to that conclusion. What is this God has done to us? You see, guilt has a way of surfacing and then resurfacing and surfacing again. It really never goes away until it's been dealt with. You know, growing up in Mississippi... My favorite time of the day was evening. In the summers, it was the only time the heat would begin to dissipate and all the kids would just pile out in the neighborhood and we'd have a great game of hide and seek. I've, I've discovered in playing that game, it's easy being the hider. I mean, you can go anywhere, you can hide any place, you don't even have to close your eyes. The difficult task is being the seeker. The... The seeker has to deliberately let the hiders escape. The seeker has got to search for those who don't want to be found. Nobody wants to be the seeker. In fact, they don't even give it a glorious title. I mean, they don't call it captain. They they don't call it team leader. They call him it. It. I, I, I mean... Think about that. There's nothing glorious about it at all. And the game starts by everyone yelling what? Not it! Last person to yell it ends up being it. Now, it has to be a very patient person. It has to look long and hard. It has to face uh, trickery, an evasion from everybody else playing the game. Now, the game is over, you know, when it finds you. That is, unless you have hidden and it can't find you. So it stands up in front of everybody and yells out for everyone to hear. Ollie Ollie oxen free! Now, nobody knows where that phrase came from. (laughs) Nobody even really knows what it means. I think it means liberate the oxen. But the hiders know what it means. It means you can come home. It means you're free. It's really a cry of grace. Did you know the game of hide and seek is really the story of God and humanity? We're the hiders. God's the seeker. And the game of hide and seek goes all the way back, back to the beginning, to the garden. You remember when Adam sinned and God came looking for him, what he said? He said this, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That is exactly what the brothers are doing. They are hiding. And hiding has always been man's first response to an awareness that he's sinned. To an awareness that we've done something wrong. We are all hiders. I mean, think about it. We hide through our rationalizations. We hide through our denials. Sometimes our hidings last for decades. Just like the brothers here. Joseph's brothers have been hiding for 20 years. They've been hiding the truth from themselves. Hiding it from each other and hiding it from dear old dad. But last week Chad showed us in verse 21 that they started to admit the truth to one another when they were arrested. And then in this verse, verse 28, we begin to see the brothers connecting the guilt they feel with the one that has been seeking them all along, it's God. Notice what they say. What is this God has done to us? You see, God knows that when we do something wrong, especially when we know it is wrong, it has this corrosive effect on our hearts. In fact, researchers call that corrosive effect cognitive dissonance. It's the way we strive to maintain internal consistency. In other words, abusers don't admit that they abuse kids. They simply admit they have a problem with impatience. Or sexual promiscuity has been relabeled serial monogamy. Financial greed has been reclassified as I'm just doing the best I can for my family. Laziness has been renamed motivational disposition. I mean, we, we... don't like admitting the truth about ourselves. We look for any way to avoid it. In fact, Duke Duke professor Dr. Dan Arrelly, in his book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, the subtitle, by the way, is How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves, has done extensive research on how we lie and how easy it is to tell a lie. Listen to what he says. Over the course of many years of teaching, I have noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. It happens mostly in the weeks before final exams and before midterm papers are due. Guess which relative dies most often? Poor old grandma. In fact, he goes on to say that uh, grandma is 10 times more likely to die before midterms, 19 times more likely to die before finals, and that for failing students, he's found that she is 50 times more likely to die than having a non-failing student. I guess the moral of his research is if your grandchild is a poor student and you want to live a long, productive life, don't let him go to college. But on a more serious note, he goes on to say that one single act of dishonesty is not an insignificant act. That one act begins to shape the way we view ourselves, and then it begins to determine how far we'll allow our standards to slip and still regard ourselves as basically good people. So that every act of wrongdoing leads to a greater likelihood of a second act of wrongdoing. In other words, when you rationalize the first sin, everything after that becomes easy to rationalize. Now, when we go back to this family found in Genesis, I mean, we discover that the brothers have now arrived home and they tell their father everything. Well, let's see if they tell him everything. Verse 29. Then they went to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us as spies of the country. But we said to him, We're honest men. We're not spies. We're twelve brothers, the son of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father to this day in the land of Canaan. And then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I'll know that you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine for your household and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me so I shall know that you're not spies and that you are honest men. I mean, do you see it? The brothers, they've admitted their wrongdoing to one another, but they still are unwilling to come clean with dear old dad. They're still hiding. You know, the irony of hiding is we hide because we're afraid if we admit the truth about ourselves, we won't be loved. But whatever is hidden can't be loved. And and the only way you can be loved is if you are known. And the more fully known you are, the more fully loved you will be. So to be known, it means you've got to begin by admitting the truth. To yourself and to others who've been impacted by it. But instead, you know what we do? We build this this false image of ourselves that we show to others. And sadly, we attempt to show it to God. But He knows the truth about us. You see, the only real freedom comes when you admit the truth. In fact, several years ago, Time Magazine had an article... It ran about a new phone company. The name of the phone company was the Apology Sound Offline. This company had created a place for people to call and confess to things that they had done wrong. To get something off their chest. After the article in Time Magazine, they began getting over 200 calls a day. And they would, people would confess to everything from marital infidelity to murder. Now... Why would someone pay to confess their wrongdoing to a stranger? It's because the heart was never created to deal with secret shame. Never created to deal with secret shame. In other words, we crave relief from the truth about ourselves. We really know what's there inside. And the only way we can get that relief is by coming to God. So the question really is, how how in the world is God going to take this cruel, violent, guilty, selfish, sinful, fearful family blind to the activity of God in their lives and make them into men of faith? Well, next week we're going to see how God uses Joseph like a a skilled surgeon, to remove and dissect the deceit that is in these brothers' hearts and bring everything into the light. See, when it comes to hide and seek, this family doesn't know it yet, but it needs to be found. Isn't that exactly what God does for us? I mean, He pursues and He persists. And He presses into our lives by using the brokenness of this world to expose the brokenness in our souls in order to awaken us to grace. God's grace. I mean, maybe for you this morning, as I've been talking, God has put His finger on something in your life. Something that maybe you have denied for the longest time. And He's saying, Would you come to me and just. Start with admitting it to me. It's the truth about you. Or maybe for others it comes through the angry voice of a spouse that makes it hard to listen to what they're, having, what they're saying to you about yourself. Your pride keeps you from admitting that they are right. I mean, whatever it might be. God is saying, Would you come to me Admit it to me and then listen to him as he guides you how to approach the person you may have offended. Admit it to them and seek forgiveness. You see, when it comes to hiding from the things we do wrong, when it comes to concealing our guilt, we all need to be found. No matter what guilt you might be wrestling with this morning, I want you to know God is standing and He is calling, Olly, alley, oxen Oxenfree. Come out, come out wherever you are. The time for hiding is over. The time to come home has arrived. Father, thank You. Thank You that You will use the brokenness of this world around us to begin exposing the brokenness of our souls so that we can come face to face with our guilt and our hearts and allow our eyes to be opened to the grace You extend to each one of us. May we become more and more aware of that grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before you leave, I want to remind you, if this is your first time at Horizon or you have questions, uh, please drop by the hearth room, third door on the left. We would love to greet you there and and get to know you, put a name with a face. And for the, the men in the audience, I want you to know, a week from Tuesday, we crank up the men's ministry uh, and it's going to be fun on Tuesday mornings, 6.09 a.m. I know you have nothing scheduled at that time. And we're going to look at a series that we're calling The Great Adventure of Manhood. Most men live lives of responsibility. They don't live life, a life of adventure. But your heart was meant for adventure. Come find out the kind of adventures God has for you. Join us It's uh, 6.09 a.m. a week from Tuesday. Thanks for coming, and we'll see you back next week.